0: Awareness, conflict, and resolution. Every story has a form, and perhaps you're used to beginning, middle, and end. But think about the three-part structure of awareness, conflict, and resolution. And what we can agree, at least many of us that read and watch movies, is that every great story has a protagonist. And for the story to be compelling, that character, that protagonist confronts conflict along the way. But the conflict itself is not the story. It's how he or she chooses to confront and hopefully overcome the struggle that makes it so interesting. It also teaches us something about ourselves and provides moments of self-reflection that ultimately become the catalyst for growth and change. It is, according to Steven Scoggins, the instrument that pushes us to explore our feelings, shape our beliefs and ultimately either defeat or define us. How well or not we face that adversity, one element is clear. And I quote from Stephen's book, if you haven't figured it out already, you will reach a point in your life when you look around and there'll be nobody left to blame. And when you look back in contemplation of how and when things went wrong, you will eventually come to the stark realization that the only person you have to blame is yourself. This passage belongs to Stephen Scoggins and it is the author of a wonderful book written many years ago, but as applicable today and probably applicable 100 years from now called The Journey Principles. This is his story of transformation. Welcome to A Climb to the Top. And
1: Stephen, welcome to the show. Hello, my friend. It's so good to see you again.
0: It's good to see you, and thank you for coming in here. You begin this book with an expectation that you were going to be a Navy SEAL. Mm -hmm. And like so many people, and I grew up in West Point, New York, home of the United States Military Academy, where my dad was on faculty. And I understand, and to many people who know me and who know you, understand that we grow up recognizing that there is a service that is bigger than us, mm-hmm. but it took you. Maybe it was that literal come to Jesus moment, where you're standing on a bridge, and all of a sudden you were told. You're not. Not only will you not be a Navy SEAL, you're not coming into this man's Navy or Army or anything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Why did you open the book with that? You know, I think because everybody needs to understand that, the moments that define us are actually the moments that can help define others. And sometimes the quickest way to help somebody understand their own story is to be transparent and vulnerable with yours. And interestingly enough, when I was standing across that bridge, I mean, it's even today I can still remember like the the, the smoke escaping my breath because it was cold outside. And I can remember the, the battle going off my left and my right shoulders. I was kind of contemplating suicide in the moment. And, you know, for me, joining the military in that moment was a last-ditch effort to somehow prove my worth and prove my value, right? I'd grown up in a very difficult upbringing, very uh, difficult situation. You know, Obviously, you've read the book, but uh, a lot of, let's let's put it this way, there was a lot of reason for me to go ahead and give up long before I even attempted to join the military. And one of the reasons I wanted to open the, the book up with that specific story was because it was, at that moment, one of those moments of either destruction or emergence and if i'm being completely candid and honest i really wasn't sure which one that was going to be in the moment
0: it was either going to defeat you or define you
1: yep absolutely and you know it, it turned out you know i had a i had a uh high school girlfriend's mother that was my one of what i guess nowadays you look back hindsight being 2020 and you realize, realize how absolutely special her she was her name was susan batts um she was known to me as mama Wama. Um, she nicknamed me Sugar Woggle when I was dating her daughter, and I said, "Fine, I'm gonna call you Mama Wama <laughs> kind of deal. So just kind of goofiness that, that stuck, huh? <laughs> yeah, it did. You know what? Well, it was crazy because you know when I was in my teenage years, my we were in the the heartbeat, if you will, of all the struggle that we had um, growing up and whatnot. And she, for some reason, took a liking to me. When I was dating her daughter, it's how she got to know me, but, you know, she, she fed me, she clothed me, I even have the, these Z shaped uh, scar on my hand where she paid for my stitches after my I got, you know, broke, you know, cut my hand on some glass and, you know, she was always there well in that moment what stopped me from committing suicide was actually her answering the phone. I had a broken Nokia 5160 phone that my grandmother had given me for like uh, to kind of, you know, call her when I got to uh, boot camp or whatever, not realizing they'd probably confiscate the phone long before then. But, you know, Um, It's, it's, it's good to have that that rabbit split. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, you know. So you know, I'm, you know, as I'm walking to the bridge, I'll, obviously, I'm, I'm feeling more and more distraught, more and more destructive. Um, I was listening to the enemies of fear and failure, and, and not going to be amount to much. And you know, something that rung in my head was my dad used to say, and this is long ago. I've since learned to learned it's a it's a it's a lie in our family tree, so to speak. And that's that Scoggins don't get ahead; they get by. And everything I had tried up until that point had been. The epitome of that message, if you will. And it wasn't until Susan um answered on the fifth call. On the fifth call was the last time I was gonna I was gonna try to pick up the phone and dial somebody. The first four tries, I either got busy signals or answering machines. And I mean the answering machines that like, you know, you push record back in the day, right? Um she picked up the phone, old raspy voice. And, you know, after about 20 minutes trying to convince me where I was at and all kinds of stuff like that, I uh she finally got me to agree. She was probably the only person on the planet that would actually agree that I would call her at 9 a.m. the next morning. And uh, in doing so, she knew, I think she knew just instinctively that I was in a lot of trouble. Um, and, if, and if she didn't act quick and act fast, she was it was gonna be a mess. But uh, one of the 11 words, if you will, that has transformed my life that I think most people forget about most days is something that she said to me in the heart of it that she made me literally scream back at her at the top of my lungs. Um, which was, this too shall pass, and what comes next will be greater. Now, I had heard this too shall pass before movies and TV shows and whatever, but I'd never heard the other piece of that, what comes next will be greater. And about two weeks later, um, on my second chance, after literally having to come to Jesus moment that we just don't have time to dump into today, you know, I not only found my faith, but I also started a construction company that became a nine-figure business over the last 22 years, That employs over 400 people. And now I have the pleasure of standing on stage and writing books and doing other things that have catapulted me forward. And I think so many people, one of the reasons I want to open up with that is because so many people look at their now, if you will, and if you focus on the now, you're going to get stuck in it. Right? The difference is, is, I was taught over time, after I was beginning to dig out, to focus on the forward and be thankful. For the, for the now and for the past, not to use it as a way to condemn myself or beat myself up about it. Right. Well, there's a couple other quotes
0: in the book that I thought were particularly powerful when they relate to your narrative here. And it was your grandmother, all mm-hmm. four foot, 11 inches, <laughs> Christine Scoggins said to you Hey, yeah. Stephen, good things come in small packages but so does dynamite. <laughs> and I that was a great one, because as you set the foundation of what you ultimately became, mm-hmm. that was followed in the book by another passage that I thought was the perfect follow-up. Do today what others won't, mm-hmm. so you can have tomorrow what others don't. And so here in your mind, you're being told that, that small package is a blessing or a curse, mm-hmm. depends on your point of view. Yep. And then when we put it all together, you can no longer blame everyone else for your failings. If all of a sudden, where was it along the line where you came to accept the fact that all these other people I cannot blame, I'm the only one here. And you used acceptance as the gateway or the catalyst for that change. What is it in that moment or were
1: there little things along the way that led you to that? You know, I think everyone's life, including my own, there's little breadcrumbs that we're ultimately following. Right. You know, sometimes a breadcrumb gets missing because a bird comes down and grabs it and runs away (laughs) with it. and And you have to skip a step or go backwards or whatever. Sometimes there's a, there's a pothole that that breadcrumb falls in, or, you know, there's, There's all kinds of reasons that you can be like removed off your course, but ultimately it's getting back on the course that you have to keep kind of focusing on. And I think for me, you know, when I think back to the major mentors in my life, Christine Scoggins was definitely one of those. She was four foot 11, fire little dynamite stick all of her own. She owned my grandfather, who was a six foot two world uh, Pearl Harbor survivor, right? Like he reported to her.
0: <laughs> kind of right? And, the you know, six foot two looking down at 411. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Whatever and, you that's,
1: need. <laughs> that's right. And I saw it over and over again. And, you know, I, there was just something about her. And you know, like Steve Mark, my first mentor, he's the one that actually formally gave me the quote, um, be willing to do today what others don't so you can have tomorrow what others don't. And it was that quote piggybacked off a conversation that we had where he asked me a very simple question as a teenager. And he said, what's the difference between a rich man and a poor man? And as a teenager, I'm like, well, duh, money, (laughs) you know, and he fell into that trap. Exactly. I know. (laughs) know, Right. I just walk right into it, you know, and he said, no, absolutely not. It's the way they think. And then he asked me another important question that I just recently started even putting out in the airwaves just because I wanted to check my father first, but he said, do you want to be like me? Or do you want to be like your father? There were only two choices. There was only two choices. And I and I was at the pivotal places in life where those two choices are there. So Steve Meyer, when he looked at wealth, it wasn't wealth and money necessarily. It was wealth and overall. It was a um, do you feel like you're consistently making progress? You know, one of my little catchphrases now that I talk about is being stuck is nothing more than not making progress and being unstoppable is consistently making progress. And I think I had little breadcrumbs leading me the way, all the way to that point. And then when I did have my come to Jesus moment, so to speak, and I guess I'll just uh, briefly kind of, it's, it's, it's a very big story. It's actually one of my signature uh, keynotes that I give, but in essence, I was completely flat broke. I had just escaped the bridge, unemployed, homeless still, barely made it on my dad's, my, my father's couch to kind of crash for a little while. Hadn't started a new job yet. I needed 50 bucks. My brother let me clean the the cat litter box of all places. And I agreed because I needed the money. I walk into the mobile home that I technically own, that he was renting from me, but he was making the mortgage payments on it because I didn't have any money. Like it's a, you know, circle. You're down and out here. You're you're, you're, you're part of that cycle. You're not out of it. Exactly. And, you know, I walk in to clean this litter box and Lord have mercy. If he'd have told me what it was going to look like, I would have asked for more money. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> it wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, apparently you're not you're you're supposed to uh, empty the litter box every now and again rather than just keep pouring sand on top of what's there. So <laughs> it was full of. Up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was full of nastiness, and you know, I, I, you know, I just, I, I kind of got all myself on myself in that moment. I think that's where that extreme accountability came into play. You know, I, I I couldn't blame my decisions on my father. I couldn't blame my decisions on my grandmother. I couldn't blame my decisions on their decisions. I couldn't blame it on my mom. I couldn't blame anybody. Right. Ultimately, I'm the one that decided to give up. Ultimately, I'm the one that decided to do a bad thing or make a mistake over here or whatever the case may be. It was my, it was me. Well, it wasn't until that I actually had to face this litter box where I'm looking at, we'll call it Tootsie Rolls and stuff everywhere, Right. And I'm, having to, I'm being forced to clean this, and this is the epitome of my life. And as I start scooping, the handle breaks. So then I have to put my thumb in the back of the scooper to keep going because I need the money. Well, then, you know, I'm, I'm scooping harder and faster, and, and things kind of go crazy, and the corner of the scooper catches the bag, and, and the proverbial stuff goes all over the place. Um, at that point in time, I began yelling at the top of my lungs to a God that I didn't believe in, technically right i've been telling myself that i was an atheist and studied the big bang theory and darwin and all these other different things and in that moment there's there's so many things epiphanies that happen in that moment the first of all is i realized i was only getting to the questions that i was asking and i was only asking the questions that i wanted to hear the answers for ah uh, it's an interesting it was a
0: foregone conclusion because you were not willing to listen to an answer, unless you were in control of the questions that had already been predetermined.
1: Exactly, Ooh, exactly. That's a tough place to be because what do you learn from that? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. You you get suffering and pain as you're as you get to take the test again, so to speak. Right. You know, I, I I tell people all the time, especially when we start talking about ultimate self awareness and an ultimate understanding of oneself in general, is that you have to be willing to look at the. You have to be willing to basically look at the, the answers to the questions you're not asking. Like right. if you know if you're gonna say, well, why me? Then you're gonna get 50 reasons why you think it's you. If you can ask yourself 50 questions around what can I learn, then you're gonna your brain is gonna do something totally different.
0: Well, then this is a great segue that if you were asking yourselves in the comfort zone of the questions that already had an answer, what was the catalyst that caused you to ask questions that would cause the discomfort that leads to the change?
1: Well, the reality is this change only occurs based on two specific things. Mm-hmm. Suffering mm-hmm. and success. Okay. Two S's. Opposite two S's. ends
0: opposite ends exactly. the spectrum. Suffering on one side, nobody nobody would consciously choose it. Success on the other, which is the complete opposite side mm-hmm. of the spectrum. But that's a very long journey between one to the other. Let me switch then because this seems to be a good place to find it. Your book was excellent framework of success. But you were very clear, this is may not be a framework for happiness. Mm -hmm. But we're putting happiness on the shelf. And we're talking about the suffering success continuum. How, Stephen, did you go from one to the other? And is that what the guiding principles
1: set out to do to be a guide along that journey? Absolutely. So suffering specifically, the reason we tend to suffer and stay in that suffering zone is because the suffering has not gotten strong enough where it actually causes enough internal pain for us to want to make a different decision. Okay. I look at conflict and adversity and any kind of stressor now as a point and a catalyst to tell me that it's time to grow. It's time to do something different, shape a new perspective, get a new framework, maybe get some new friends, new relationships. Pain is an indicator not that your life is going to an end or not that your life is destined to fail or 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 you're destined to experience meaningless walking around sleepwalking through life i've discovered that suffering and pain is an indicator that you have a choice to make in moving forward so obstacles for example when you look at obstacles some people look at obstacles of all the things that are standing in their way i now look at obstacles as building blocks that help create a foundation that allowed me to continually raise my standards and raise the staircase, if you will, and continually climb my ultimate moments of quote-unquote failure. And here's why. Suffering has meaning when you can use it in the service of others. What I mean by that is, is I've discovered that ultimately there's one major purpose in life that I see, but there's technically three. The first purpose in life that I think is the most pivotal is one of the greatest reasons that we suffer is so we can actually go back and actually help the person we used to be. If you look at all of my businesses all over the place, the Journey Principles, CHE, my real estate holding companies, all of my businesses have one major thing in common. They all serve the person that I used to be. The construction guy, the author guy, the speaker guy, the homeless guy, the down and out guy, the guy on the bridge, all of that.
0: They are all a reflection of everywhere you've been.
1: Exactly. Wow. The problem is is most people aren't taking the time to look at their journey objectively. There's a practice in um, NLP technology or NLP theology that that causes disassociation. And actually can
0: you I, I know in neurolinguistics, could you just for our listeners because you, you talk about it in the book and it's certainly in your, in your bio this is this is a good instructional moment for those who may not know what it is. could you define that, please?
1: Yeah, so my basic understanding of neurolinguistics is nothing more than the quality of the terminology you say to yourself. Mm -hmm. So neurolinguistics has an approach of, for example, uh, of what's called a disassociation. Mm -hmm. Now, a lane brain way to say disassociation is to instead of looking like you're looking like looking at your life like you're a character in your story. Instead, step out of your story and look at it from the perspective of being an editor on the cutting room floor. Because then you can look at your quote unquote villains, you can look at your co stars, you can look at everything that's shaping that's causing that quote unquote hero to maneuver around their journey. Mm -hmm. And see, the only difference between a hero, right, and someone who's not, who's what I refer to as becoming a hero, is the hero becomes uniquely aware that something has to change as a whole. So when you look at everything that you've been through and you look at it as a way to beat yourself up, cause judgment on yourself, blame, shame, guilt, all that stuff. That you're dumping on yourself because of all the mistakes that you made, some of which are influ- influence-based, meaning you were in an environment or a parental situation that, that kind of shaped your belief system. Mm-hmm. Other p- other components of, hey, look, I did this totally by choice because I was selfish and I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, and everything has a result. So by using in a different approach and you actually take the time, this is one of the things I love about self-awareness as a whole, is when you step outside of yourself and view your life through the lens of compassion and understanding, then and only then do you begin to see the patterns. And after you can address a pattern, now you can look for root causes that cause the pattern. So when you ask about whether or not it was kind of like a a quicker moment or a a steady state of little happenings along the way, Mm There were little happenings along the way with catalyst ahas and little happenings along the way with catalyst ahas and little happenings along the way with catalyst Mm -hmm. ahas. Yeah, exactly. Just just little
0: humps along the journey as you're climbing that mountain. Yeah, there's little things, but they peak. Yeah. You find another peak. And when you put all those peaks together, that continues
1: Mm -hmm. to vault you forward. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. It is so repetitive and it works so well with anybody's life. Um, that I created a piece of content called the seven levels of life mastery. Okay. Explain seven that. levels of life mastery. Super quick. Awareness. Yep. I'm sorry. Awakening. Awakening. First. Awakening. Right. Awareness. Yep. Right. 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 You meet your mentor and your guide. And if if, you, if I go back and honestly look at my life, Susan Batts, Steve Mark, Frank Wisner, Dave Ramsey, John Maxwell, all these guys came in at key moments in my life mm-hmm. that where I was, I went from one big catalyst moment to a bunch of little baby ones and all of a sudden they're they're key parts of the catalyst, right?
0: Let me relate that to the movie watchers. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yep. Yoda.
1: Yep. Boom, boom, all the way to the hero's journey. That's, That's what right. you're describing. Exactly. Well, ultimately it's a lot like that. So after mentorship comes implementation, you now have to implement Going back to the Jedi analysis, Obi-Wan is in a in the Millennium Falcon with uh, Luke Skywalker, and he's got him zapping little, you know, trying to cut a ball in half and he can't <laughs> catch it, right? He's <laughs> beginning to implement what he's being trained. Right. And to after, trust, to
0: let it go, trust.
1: Exactly. Right. And after implementation, right, comes maturity. After maturity comes emergence. And after emergence comes mastery. People give up far too often because they don't know where they are in the journey. So what someone should be asking themselves right, right now is, where am I in my journey? Am I in an awakening phase? Maybe this maybe this show is going to be the awakening phase and say, you know what? I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something better. I'm going to get fired up. I'm going after it, and nothing's going to stop me anymore. Maybe you're in the mentor piece where you're sitting down with somebody who's constantly training you. Maybe you're putting in the reps, Right. Maybe you are learning to lead a different way. Maybe you are learning to be more attentive to your spouse. Maybe you're learning, learning better to help your kids. By knowing where you are in the journey, you understand what's coming next and you don't get lost in the now. Because if you get lost in the now, you'll stay there. The life mastery system happens over and over and over and over again, step by step by step by step. What I've done is no different than what anybody else can do. I don't look at myself as any way special or any kind of like guru of any kind. What I've done differently is I finally began to listen to my mentors that I had ignored all those years who tried to who tried their best not to have me have those those catalyst moments that were going to be caused by pain, right? And that's what we have to do. What we have to do right now is to make sure that we really go after our life, because it's the only one that we, in theory, that we know we get right. <laughs> that's whether all you got. <laughs> God or the universe or whatever. <laughs> Let's right? just
0: assume what whether there is an afterlife or not. Yep. Let's just assume this is the one that we have.
1: Exactly. Right. So, with that being said, you should be sharpening your skills, almost like whittling a, a you know, something pretty out of a piece of wood. Overall. Yeah, I
0: appreciate that. And I think for our listeners, you know, they hear often and certainly on a climb to the top, we've had many on the guests who talk about their journey. But you're, you, you, Stephen, are making a point about if you're not sure, mm-hmm. you're going to be somewhere on one of those seven points. Yep. And often for people, particularly in this metric driven world, if you want to measure it, you first have to self-awareness to see where you are and then a coach, a mentor, or someone mm-hmm. to help you to just continue to climb on that. And I love that, the way that you catalog it. But I want to change to something slightly different. And I think irrespective of each of the stages of the journey, you do talk about something that I want to examine. Sure. In 2015, I read a book by a Wharton professor called Give and Take. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, his name is Adam Grant. And he talked about the world being separated into Mm -hmm. givers, takers, and what he calls matchers. Mm -hmm. You did it in such a way that there was a certain corporate sentiment to it, that if you want to work in an organization, the most successful people are givers, the least successful people are givers. And the difference is those that can give and still take care of themselves and those that give and just give everything away, including themselves. You make a very interesting point in the book about the division between the givers and the takers. Can you explain your mindset? and the implications toward how either one of them could form the basis of where you are going to decide to take that journey?
1: Well, first of all, I would say that the giver and taker journey is, is pivotal for all of us because at any moment in time we could become the giver or the taker. Right. And one of the ways I say that is because life to me is all about moving from selfishness to selflessness. Right. And that's where actualization actually technically takes place is when you get to the point where your life is so much about serving others and and, and doing so and respectively, that you kind of move to that direction. Right. At that being said, I'll, the best way I know to describe my perspective on givers and takers is to tell a quick story about my grandmother. Okay. So my nanny, which was my mother's mother. And mentioned often in the book and early. Exactly. It was fun to read about her. <laughs> exactly. My nanny uh, to me was the most in my life until she passed away in my, until in my young, my young, uh, I guess not even wasn't quite a teenager, but just shy of it. Uh, my youth was empowering, encouraging, uplifting, Stephen, you can do anything, you know, you can be anything kind of mentality, right? I loved her to death. Um, what I did not know until well into my mid twenties was that my nanny, my grandmother was not a great mother to my mother. For some reason, I found out later on that my grandmother gave up drinking the day that I was born. She treated me and my little brother like we were her life's second chance. Interesting. Which, in the moment when she was being, you know, she was raising my mother, she was obviously struggling with alcohol. I later, because I didn't find out until later on. Um, She struggled to have healthy relationships outside of her original husband that obviously fathered my mother to begin with which put my mother in a lot of bad circumstances, right? Right? A lot of selfishness there. Her life, however, ended in the service of others. Her life ended with her giving to her youngins, so to speak, as she likes to say in the country, Right? right? So here's the dichotomy. My mother went for years upon years upon years, becoming a taker, because a taker is what was illustrated bef- before her. Right. Okay. She modeled, she, that, she modeled the behaviors. Exactly. She was forced to, well, I say forced to, she chose to, over the course of the years, to model the behavior that she saw that my grandmother had. But on top of that, she also saw it as a way to survive. Right. right. So okay? survival
0: mechanism. It, it's the
1: exactly. digging in instinct that tells you I got to survive. Exactly. You know, when I was before my litter box moment, I was very much a taker. I would borrow with the intent of not to repay. I would promise without the intent of following through. You know, those are met- methodologies of a taker. Now, takers, givers and takers specifically, have different ways of looking at the world. or different lenses. The giver says, how much can I offer? How much value can I bring? The taker says, how much can I get? How much do you owe? What, what can you offer me? What I've discovered about the illusion of happiness is happiness by itself is unattainable. There's a place of contentment. There's a place of connection and joy. And a lot of times you're only discovering that specifically by going from the taker mindset into a giver mindset. But then you can have a life event that forces you to go into enclosure and go into survival mode. And that's when typically your, some of your taking behaviors could come out again. Givers and takers by nature... Feed off of one another a lot. It's not uncommon for a taker to be partnered with a giver and a giver to be partnered with a taker. Very seldom do you see two givers together. And then some of the most destructive relationships you see are two takers together. Yeah, the, the
0: destruction
1: that somehow contrary to nature that tends
0: to put the poles together. Mm-hmm. You know, we have exactly. opposite sides of the same coin and that's where the 10 couples, even though that may be a spark for what is sometimes conflict. It's also Part of the passion that puts mm-hmm. them together. But what's interesting about that is in one of the chapters, the chapter was labeled, and I, I just see it in big, bold <laughs> letters. And, and what you talk about is the takers, and sometimes the takers get put themselves in isolation because mm-hmm. they're not giving to others. They're actually isolated from yeah. the universe, figuring out what to take. And you state very clearly that that isolation, while some people may retreat to it because they think that that's a better place, they feel better by not being around everyone else, yeah. that it is a trap. And and while many of your principles, and there were 10 in this wonderful book, this one in particular speaks to the conversion of the selfish to the selfless. Can you explain, I love that chapter. Can you explain that?
1: The best way to try to explain it is isolation is a trap. And the reason it's a trap is because it prevents you from becoming the person that you need to be for yourself and becoming the person that you need to be for the people around you. Isolation puts you in a place where you can't learn. You can't be inspired. You can't be empowered. You can't take action. It puts you in a place where destruction is inevitable. In fact, you know, I mentioned the seven levels of life mastery. There there are actually steps going the other way, which are doubt, confusion, frustration, aggravation, and eventually desperation. Right. Ultimately, someone who's going to stay in the isolation mode, they're going to find themselves in the desperation mode. You see, the isolation part of my story predated my bridge, but not by much. Mm -hmm. I spent so much time in isolation, I didn't know my actual real value. Now, I did that as a self-preservation mode. I didn't know what I didn't know. The people I was surrounded by were basically sharks and piranha. They were just toxic people. Right. You know, I taught my daughter a trick years ago that we actually use in the journey principles now about look at your five top five to ten people you spend time with, rank them on a scale of one to ten about how much value they bring. Yeah. And, and you're I'm the average. Her. Yeah. I mean, if and if you find out anybody's under a seven, they need to be cut out of the, you know, cut out of the picture for a while. Yeah. It's not. People move into isolation because of confusion, frustration, and aggravation more than anything else. Okay, so they move into that isolation mode, and then out of that becomes self-preservation. They think them, they think they're doing them themselves a favor. They think that they are wrapping themselves in safety and security. It's that fight or flight kind of scenario. Correct. That's what I was okay?
0: thinking when when I read it.
1: Yep. As a result, one of the things that I used to break away from the isolation game because I was heavily involved in isolation was I began to just go to the coffee shops, go to the restaurants, just go out by myself. I would put my earbuds in my ear and I would write and type. And the reason I did that is because there's, I don't know how to articulate it in uh, secular terms per per se, but if you were to walk into a dark room, close the door, no lights on. If somebody else is in that room, you will sense their presence. Okay. Conversely, if you go into the same room and there's nobody in that room, you can also sense that there's no presence. So, whatever you believe, human beings give off a certain level of, I call it frequency for lack of a better word, they give off a certain presence about themselves. What I did was, is when I was trying to open up the wound, so to speak, and cleanse it and get back to a good place, right, was I would go to the coffee shops, i pop pop the earbuds in, I would sit down and I would type, but I could watch and sense the laughter around other people. I was inherently aware of everything that was happening around me, and over time, I started talking to the cashier a little more. Over time I'd say, "Hey, would you like to would you like to sit on this chair?" That's how you baby step your baby-step your way out of isolation into safety and security. Because over time with the right principles, you can now look at people that are coming at you, meaning they're coming into your life, and you can understand are they coming from a selfish motive or are they coming from a selfless motive? And most of the people that are coming into my life nowadays are far more on the selfless side of things than the selfish side of things.
0: Well, what you're describing, Stephen, goes just back to the the entire basis of nature, where you're in the cocoon. And in mm-hmm. order to come out of the cocoon, that space in between is pain. Yep. And someone's hurting, and it's it, it's it's the struggle. Yeah. Ultimately, when you come out of that, you're freed. The good news about being in the cocoon feels safe. The bad Mm -hmm. news is you're isolated and you're in your trap until nature slowly, no one, there's Mm -hmm. no explosion. It's not a rocket ship. It's a slow evolution. Yep. On your way out, and that's what you're describing. So I felt in the book, it felt very natural to me to the way that you described it, because it spoke very much to just our normal being, nothing in particular, just back to human nature. Yeah. So, so let, let's. Th- this is wonderful. Let me summarize a couple of things for our listeners, because I think there's some 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 key lessons here, that the journey is a sum of several principles of seven that can work both for you on the way up, but mm-hmm. also can be destructive on the way down if you don't preserve exactly. the things that got you along the way. So that's the mastery. The journey itself, the, the principles along the journey. So while the journey is cataloged, it's the principles by which you are living that are causing you to mark yourself along the journey. Could you let everyone know where to find your books? Book, books, different things. Where do we find Stephen Scoggins? Because I would like as a call to action for our listeners that that this is stuff that people can relate to and that so many need. So help us to understand where we can find you.
1: Well, first of all, it's an honor just being here to help share today. Thank you for that. Thank you Um, for coming on. The the best place to find me is either at journeyprinciples.com or Uh You can find The Journey Principles everywhere books are sold. Uh, we do have a major release of a new book coming out first part of next year. Talk not us about it. Yeah, I can't, I can't take, talk too much about it just yet, but it's coming. Okay, it's um, good. Thanks for the can, heads up. Absolutely. If you want some free content just to kind of help you get started, you can always find us at YouTube, and that's probably the best place to get some just free content.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And... Let's take
0: stock, and Stephen, I'd like you to talk directly to our listeners. As you think about the wonderful stories and the vulnerability that you shared on your journey, for all those listening that are gonna relate to some point along the journey, what do you want them to think? What do you want them to feel? And last, the call to action, what do you want our listeners to do with the insight that you've provided? So let's start with the first one. What do you want them to think about their, their lives, their possibilities? It's not over,
1: (laughs) right? There's a good, it's not over. No, seriously. Yeah. yeah, I want them to understand that whatever they've made of their journey so far, whether they're happy with it, pleased with it, they're afraid of it, hurt by it or whatever, whatever that is right now, you're just getting started. Yeah, You really are. I I would have never thought when I was over top of that bridge that I would be writing books and standing in front of thousands of people talking and speaking. And you you just don't know. So you got to keep going. You got to keep going. All right. What do you want them to feel? I want them to feel hope and inspiration.
0: Indeed. In fact, I think that, that that's we all want that. But I think to your point, that unless you are open mm-hmm. and inviting to the Yodas and the Obi-Wan Kenobis, because your point, you made a very important one. Your mentors, John Maxwell, Dave Ramsey, they were important to you at a point in your life where you were finally open to accept their help. Mm-hmm. And look what they did. They helped you along the way through each of those different peaks along those destinations. And now, what do you want them to do?
1: What I want you to do is take the first step. Just take, <laughs> the, first, take the first step. It's often the hardest one. And as you take the first step, the second one will begin to show itself. I'll, I want to share one final thing if it's all right. And of that course. is, I used to close a, a signature keynote um, with this quote. And it's that every journey has a principle. Every principle offers a promise. But when you live by the right principles, you also get to live by the promises.
0: Wow, that's pretty profound. Um, I thought I'd heard them all. Okay, can, can you say – I want to let that breathe a bit. Say that one more time, Stephen. I want everyone to key in on this because somebody's got a pen where they're on their desktop – this is a learning opportunity because it's an insightful piece of the do advice. Say that again. Every journey has a principle. Every. Let me, let me, let, let's go through this so that people can really lock sure. in. Every Absolutely. journey, ha- every journey has a principle.
1: Meaning they are living life by the right principles or the wrong one, period. We are living life by the right principles or the wrong one. Exactly. So if every journey has a principle inside of every single principle offers a promise for results. Inside
0: of every single principle offers a promise for results.
1: Good or bad? Good or bad. So if you live by the right principles, if you live by the right principles, you also get to live the promises.
0: You also get to live the promises.
1: So every journey has a principle. Every principle has a promise inside of every... Excuse me, I've missed my own quote. <laughs> <Every> <laughs> I've done, but we've to... all done that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Every journey has a principle. Every principle has a promise. And if you live by the right principles, you also get to live by the right promises. Well, what you're describing here, Stephen,
0: is the mountaineer in me. What I know is it's very easy at the bottom of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Just give in to the impulse. There's the top and you're thinking about the, the top. That's not the way we climb mountains because that's not the way to get there. What we know is the first step is the hardest because they're so terrifying but also we don't focus on that. We focus on the step at a time because because that journey up the mountain, your journey, the journey principles, it's a culmination of all these stages along the way. And yet somehow people feel that they think that there's a shortcut to that top. <laughs> I think right. Exactly. Are you serious? Short shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to the top. Um, Indeed. Stephen, this has just been wonderful. And I I urge all of our listeners to abide by Stephen's principles or many of us on the show. Stephen wakes up every day and goes to the work in the service of all of your happiness and success. And for that, Stephen, we are blessed that you have come on to a climb to the top to share your story and, of course, The Journey Principles. It's been my honor, my
1: friend. Hope to do it again.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen. And to our listeners, you have listened to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. You can always reach me on my website, chuckgarcia.com. Hit the contact button, drop us a line, let us know how you're doing. Good night to all of our listeners.